0: Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome to The Stacks award-winning author, Lauren Markham. Lauren is here to talk about her new book, A Map of Future Ruins on Borders and Belonging. It follows the author's quest to trace her own Greek heritage, as well as recent immigration through Greece and a fire that destroyed Europe's largest refugee camp. This book about immigration quickly turns into a meditation on ancient history, mythology, and the predictive power of migration stories. Lauren is also the author of a book that I absolutely loved, The Far Away Brothers, Two Young Migrants and the Making of an American Life. Today, Lauren and I get to talk about myth-making, how immigration activism is tied to abolition, and the idea of a ghost book. Remember, the Stacks book club pick for February is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. I will be discussing this book on Wednesday, February 28th with Dr. Uche Blackstock. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of the Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear today, consider joining The Stacks Pack, which is our community for book lovers that you can find at patreon.com slash The Stacks. By joining The Stacks Pack, you make it possible for me to make this independent podcast every single week. And you get a slew of perks for yourself. Things like our monthly virtual book club, access to our Discord community, bonus episodes, shout-outs on the show, and other awesome things. And it's only $5 a month. So please head to patreon.com slash thestacks to join. Here's a shout-out to our newest members, Rachel, Sunny Mumford, Carly, Shannon Sanders, Maricela Chavez, Bia Z, Meredith Edwards, Alyssa Munson, Jenny, and Alicia Ward. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack, I could not make the show without you. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Lauren Markham. All right, everybody, I'm so excited. I am joined today by an author whose book, whose first book I read in 2018 sort of randomly. I don't even know how I found it and I loved it. And I have been waiting sort of patiently for six years, maybe five and a half years to get this (laughs) next book. The book is called A Map of Future Ruins on Borders and Belonging. The author is Lauren Markham, and she is here. Lauren, welcome to The Stacks. Thank
1: you so much. I'm so honored to be here with you, Tracy.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. Um, I hope at the end, we'll have a little bit of time to talk about your first book. But I do want to talk about your new book, A Map of Future Ruins. In about 30 seconds or so, will you just tell folks what this book is about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a book about migration and belonging, and it centers around the story of a fire that destroyed the largest refugee camp in Europe, um, which is camp called Moria on the Greek island of Lesbos and the six young Afghans that were fingered for that crime um, in spite of, you know, very little evidence against them. So, but the book is sort of part reporting on contemporary borders and about that case, but it's also part memoir of my own family's migration story from Greece over a century ago. And, and it's an inquiry into the mythologies of Western civilization and of people on the move and of borders more broadly.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about this because the book is working on a lot of different levels and I want (laughs) to dig into sort of like your thinking as a writer. But I think my first question for you has to do with the Greece of it all. Um, Your family's Greek. They uh, On your dad's side, they immigrated from Greece and you kind of go back and you find them and you're fine, like where you're from and all of that. But I'm Mm -hmm. kind of curious, like at the bigger picture because you're a you're a journalist who writes about immigration. We should say that. Like that's is your professional work. And so yes. this book is sort of like your professional world and your personal world coming together. And the question, <laughs> getting there. And the question <laughs> is what is it about Greece and immigration that maybe us North Americans who don't do this for work maybe like don't understand or aren't thinking about? Like, why is this an interesting place to write what you've written?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So exactly. I write a lot (laughs) about immigration and borders. And for most of my career until about 2019, I was really focused on, I mean, I was writing about global immigration, but a lot of what I was writing about was immigration in the U.S. context. Um, So looking largely at our southern border and, you know, the cascade of borders um, south of our southern border that Uh, kind of lead up to our our southern border here in the U.S., but I started reporting on Greece because I had a feeling, a hunch, a sort of, like, spidey sense that there was something that I was mostly dismissing at the time, but I was sort of like, well, let me just follow my notes here, Um, that there was, like, some interesting symmetry between what was happening in the U.S. and what was happening in Europe um, in terms of the... (laughs) Very large number of people coming, and the very massive efforts of the governments, um, in our case the u s government and, and in Europe, like many governments working you know together as the eu to keep people from crossing the border, mostly refugees and asylum seekers out, uh, you know, increasingly at any cost. So I saw this symmetry between, or possible symmetry between what was happening here and what was happening there. And I wanted to know more about that. But I also had this like interesting sense of like, this is this place that's a mythological place in my mind, because it's where my, you know, my family's origin story is, is narrated from, right? Like my family understands itself to be from this place that I'd never been. And we have this migration story from this place. And meanwhile, there are, so many, I mean, you know, millions of people who are trying to get to Europe, who are crossing um, very, very perilous crossings um, like they do in the United States to get to Europe. And Greece is one of, because Greece is on the edge of Europe, Greece is kind of a gateway um, into the European Union. So that was sort of where I, st- that is why Greece and sort of where I started. It was also of note to me um, that Greece was this place where, that is so you know, foundational, um, it's, it's, it's mythological standing, um, and it's the role of its mythologies The mythologies that come from ancient Greece, are really critical and key within the West's kind of the so called West's idea of itself. So I was kind of interested in all of those things like this place this place where my family comes from. It's this place where all of these people are going. There are these symmetries to what's happening in the United States. Um, and it's also this place that narrates itself as the origin of Western civilization, um, which in and of itself is a myth, right?
0: Right. And your book is very interested in myths and myth-making about yes. Greece and about immigration and about, like, I mean, America or, or, yep. or established places to where immigrants want to go and establishes a giant air quotes there. Um, but I guess the question around myth making for me and the thing, like, as I was reading the book, you know, early in the book, you sort of talk about ancient Greece Mm -hmm. and like the Parthenon, which I have been to like a good, like a good little tourist. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Shout out to all the tourists out there. (laughs) Um, and you talk about how it wasn't always white, like all (laughs) of the ancient, greek mm-hmm. stuff had paint and stuff on it uh-huh. it was colors and yep. that really messed with my brain because mm-hmm. so much of america's visual mythology if not also like the idea of democracy and all of that is tied to these like great white pillars and yep. this certain kind of architecture that harkens back to a certain place and a certain time and from the beginning you know you're sort of excavating I guess, pun intended, um, (laughs) what our country is founded on and like what it means to be American and what it means to support democracy and all of these things. And I guess like, was that something that you, was the myth stuff, something that you knew and understood as you were going in, or was that something that sort of revealed itself to you once you got in there and started like thinking about this project?
1: I would say both, um, both are true. I was really interested, you know, most of the people coming to Greece, although not all, but, but many are coming via sea crossings. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's true. Many people are coming into Europe via the sea. And, you know, one of the most famous texts um, that many of us were um, forced to read probably a little bit too early, um, in my opinion, <laughs> but in, in, our, in our lives is like the Odyssey, right? There's yeah. this valiant hero traveling these seas, you know, um, and there's this this sort of like I mean he's an historical figure, but it's also this this mythology built around this historical figure, right, of his homecoming, and it's like that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to he's fleeing violence and and experiencing all of these hardships, and he's trying to get to safety and and home, and so. I was sort of interested in this idea of like, well, this is the landscape of the Odyssey. This is the landscape of journeys and journey making Mm. and the mythological heroic journey. And when did the journey turn from like the territory of the hero into the territory of the wretch or the rejected or, you know, the misbegotten or the um, disenfranchised. Right. Um, And so I was sort of interested in that symmetry, although, um, you know, I knew that wasn't exactly enough to make a book out of, but again, in the sort of early stages, I, I was interested in that, but what revealed itself the the layers of mythology and myth-making kept revealing themselves to me over time um the more i researched this book and everything from what you're talking about like the mythology of whiteness the myth of whiteness in ancient sculptures right this idea that like we see this classical and now neoclassical or contemporary classical images and the 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 way that's understood is this bare white lustrous stone well that's you know that paint just flecked off, right? Like it was, in in fact, inc- incredibly colorful. But there's also the myth of whiteness in general, like in, in terms of human whiteness, right? Like a lot of white supremacists today use the ancient world as a touchstone for their idea and ideals of white supremacy. But in fact, whiteness didn't exist as a concept. Um, The great scholar Nell Irvin Painter writes beautifully about this, and I quote her in the book, you know, there was no idea of whiteness. There was no concept of whiteness in the ancient world. So that's something that's been created, right, in arrears. And that's what a myth is, right? It's something, it's a story we make backward. It's a story we tell backward to make sense of the present, right? And some myths are much more pernicious than others. So yeah, I would say that like I understood some, like there were some like interesting mythological uh, things that were calling, elements of this book that were calling me from the beginning, but more and more uncovered themselves and revealed themselves over time.
0: Right. I want to talk about what you sort of just touched on also, the idea that like coming to a new place by sea or like going somewhere in certain mm-hmm. myths is, you know, to be is a hero's journey and to be lauded and this great thing. And now we're in a time and place where people who leave their home to go to a new land to find a better world are criminalized, yep. villainized, uh, dehumanized, all the bad yeah. eyes. <laughs> but I want to know, I guess, just like from your research and knowledge was there ever a time since the great myths of the world (laughs) where immigrants and refugees were, welcomed contemporaneously. Like we know Mm -hmm. from American history and like from your family history in this book, like nobody liked the Greeks when they came. Nobody liked the Irish. Nobody (laughs) liked, you know, like, uh, you name it. Yeah. (laughs) Anything. Anybody who's coming, we don't like it. The Polish, Mm -hmm. the Mexicans, El Salvadorians, like we hate you. Has there ever been a time where immigrants were welcomed warmly from Mm -hmm. jump for longer than like a few weeks by the locals. Cause in your book, you do talk Mm -hmm. about how some Greek people were very welcoming to the refugees, but that has quickly changed. So like, is there any time that it's been nice?
1: Yeah. So I would say to your sort of last point there, you know, one of the great tragedies of what's happened to refugees in contemporary Greece is that they were welcomed largely, you know, by and large with open arms and, you know, various people in Greece were nominated for the Nobel Prize in 2015 for what they were doing to welcome refugees to their shores. Um, And since then, the situation has curdled for all sorts of reasons that we can talk about about later. And there is a huge anti-immigrant, there's a huge, beautiful humanitarian solidarity movement, but there's a massive uh, anti-immigrant upswell there. But to your question about, you know, throughout human history, I mean, I I think there are times and places and and um, sort of cultures past and present and uh, far past and present and in the middle where refugees had been more welcomed. But ancient Greece is actually a place that we can look. Um, The writer John Washington, um, who has a new book coming out soon about um, a case for open borders, uh, he's a fantastic immigration journalist and he writes beautifully about how, you know, asylum in ancient Greece was was not just a political practice but almost a spiritual idea the idea that we must you know asulia means it means protected by the gods that's where asylum comes from so one could come there was a ritual where one would come in and come into the city state and go to a particular place and wrap a branch around their arm then that was you know their their application for asylum. It was sort of like an application and a supplication, and saying, you know, I need protection. I need to be here. And uh, that was a pretty time honored practice. So it's interesting that um, you know this place that so many you know again scare quotes here but you know Western countries look to as the the birthplace of civilization itself, and certainly of Western civilization. Um, And these now Western countries are doing so much to try to keep refugees out are actually forgetting um, this 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 fundamental idea and ideal of ancient Greece and of democracy, which is that we want to protect our neighbors when they need protection. And we want to offer this this practice.
0: Okay. well, you you teased this earlier. You said for many reasons, things have changed in Greece and the people who are welcoming folks with open arms. You said we'll get to that later. Well, let's just get to Mm -hmm. it now. What's what happened? (laughs) Like what? What the fuck?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that uh, people were out there welcome, right? Um, and yeah. situations were out there welcome. So, you know, truly, grandmothers in Greece were walking down to the shore, baking cookies and handing, you know, like and baking bread and giving what little they had to the refugees who were landing. Tons of Greeks and people from all over Europe came to, um, you know, especially islands like Lesbos and Chios and Samos, um, the hotspot islands on, on you know, which are kind of closest to Turkey. So we where many of the boats land because of their geographic proximity to the border, and you know fishermen were halting their fishing operations and going out and truly like lifting people from the sea and saving them. Um, and over time, resources become drained. That is, you know, a fisherman has to go back and fish, and there is a sense that you know, like, okay, where is the help from outside? It's one thing an emergency. You, When something is happening for a couple of months, for a year, we can call it an emergency. I think when people, when the same circumstance continues over years and years and years, which it has basically since 2015, with you know some ebbing and flowing, that ceases to feel to the people living there like an emergency, and it feels like an abandonment to a lot of people. They feel like, okay, where is Germany here? Where are other you know more resource countries in EU in the EU coming to help us? Why is it that we are shouldering the work of caring for these people and managing this emergency, right? So I think there's that, but also, like in the United States and like in countries all over, you know, the world, immigrants and refugees have been used as a political football and um, a rallying cry for right-wing populism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to say, "Vote for us," because look at what look at what's happening here. Look at all of these people. They're not desperate refugees coming here. They're people coming to steal your jobs and your livelihoods and to take your homes. And these are invaders. Right. So the refugee, the profile of the refugee all over the world has been cast as as an invader. And Greece, you know, right, right wing leaders in Greece have capitalized upon that and won. And then I would also say that it's important to remember and hold the context of the 2008 debt crisis and what that did Mm -hmm. to Greece. I mean, Greece is still reeling from the effects of the 2008 debt crisis um, that effectively the powers of Europe hitched Greece to an endless debt regime. Right. So it's one of the poorest countries in Europe. So you have people sort of saying like, well, wait a second. We have Angela Merkel we have the Germans um, and the, you know, like all these, all these countries in Europe um, that sort of created this crisis for us and make us one of the poorest countries in Europe. They are telling us what we have to do with the refugees for Europe. And sure, they're sending money here, but they decide how many refugees they take and when they take them and who gets asylum and who doesn't. We're, you know, an island. Like the island of Lesbos is ninety thousand people who live there, and right, and you know, there have been twenty thousand, thirty thousand refugees on the island at any one given time. At certain points, like that, does not feel to people living on Lesbos like a an equitable shouldering of the care for for refugees. So I think like some people are just furious at Europe for not at the rest of Europe for not helping more. And I would also say that there are other Um, country, or there are other people who are angry at the refugees themselves um, for them coming at all.
0: Right. One of the things that I have become obsessed with in the years that I've been Mm. doing this podcast is abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, It started as an interest in police and prison abolition. Mm -hmm. Since I have been reading in those spaces, I've realized it's actually like a lot of other things, including especially immigration and borders and these detention centers and all of this stuff. And you don't spend a ton of time on it in the book because it's really not the point of your book, but towards the end you do sort of talk about like what, what, can be done or what could be done differently. You mentioned mm-hmm. that like detentions are $134 a day mm-hmm. per person, but other models, which are like a case management model, cost mm-hmm. only $4 a day per person. And I guess the bigger question for me as I think about, because one of the things that I love about abolition and the thinking is like, what is possible? Like, how am I limiting myself to thinking within these systems that are already broken and what can we do that's bigger or better? And so my question for you, and I don't know if there's an answer, but like, do we need borders? (laughs) I don't
1: think we need, I certainly think we do not need borders in the way that we have them, right? And I think that we do not need militarized borders sure. that are such um, wicked, terrible lines in the sand, right? That are fortified and treated as absolutes, right? When they're actually figments of the political and social imagination. Mm-hmm. I I mean, again, I'll plug, I have not read it, um, but I really admire his writing. I'll plug John Washington's uh, forthcoming book, which is you know, a case against borders, um, mm-hmm. because that's like the project of that book. right. But but what I will say is that the border has become a political tool and a symbol, but a very like real symbol. To send the very message I was just talking about with that, like the politicians are sending to the Greeks, and again, this you know echoes everywhere, including very, very, very to any U.S. American listener, right? Like we have right. heard this story, we hear this all the time. We're hearing it right now with Abbott right. in Texas, right? Like, right. and you know, with Florida, and every you know, all sorts of political rhetoric of we must seal our borders. If we don't, they are coming for us. If we don't, this hor- horrific thing will happen, and it creates a boogeyman out of anyone on the other side of the border, it creates an othering, and that is an incredibly effective political tool. One of the things that I've been writing and thinking about, and I write about it a little bit in the book, and I've been writing about it since, is the way that not only are immigrants othered and turned into sort of a, a... rendered as criminals, as invaders, marauding invaders, right? Um, These characters of malicious intent coming Mm -hmm. for you. Like, it really is sort of like, they're like, you know, the zombie apocalypse is not like a totally unfair, like, corollary here, Right. right? Like, there are these, like, scary, terrifying people on the other side coming for us. And that is why we must do everything to protect the border. So we criminalize immigrants. That's exactly what happened to the six Afghans I write about in, in in this case that it's like, okay, we, you know, this place burned down, someone needs to pay for it. These six will do. So we criminalize immigrants and we decide that they can be, I mean, to your point about abolition, we decide that they must be housed in prisons, right? That that's what detention is. It's a prison. So we're going to, the immigrants come across, we're going to put them in prison, even if they are fighting for a case to stay, and they have a case, you know, moving through courts, they can still be staying in prison. But we also (laughs) um, are increasingly criminalizing the people helping them. right? right? And so the border is not only an effective tool in, and, and the sort of fortification of the border and the mythology of the border is not only an effective tool in, stripping rights and humanity of people immigrating, but it's also a wildly effective tool to get citizens and people living on this side of the border, right, inside the border, to give up and cede their rights. And that is the major autocratic project, right? Mm. That we will all cede rights in because the border and protecting it is so important. And we see that happening all the time. Right. And we see it happening increasingly. And that is, like, you know, that's what... um, Stephen Miller has sort of laid out in in Trump's immigration plan.
0: Right. And it should be said, I mean, you said it in the book very clearly, but for folks at home, like it's not illegal to come to a country and seek asylum. Like that is fully legal. So the idea that people are being imprisoned for that behavior Uh, And by behavior, I mean doing a thing to save their lives and their families. I shouldn't say behavior because behavior sounds like naughty. (laughs) Uh, I've been around too many four-year-olds, I guess. Um, But that people are being criminalized for doing something that has been, you know, globally agreed on is within their human rights. That's the part that's, like, extra super-duper fucked up. Because at least, like... When you are criminalizing people for committing crimes, there's some argument that if you believe in punishment, that they are deserving of punishment because they've committed a crime. But in this case, you're punishing people for doing something that is allegedly within their human rights, which makes it like extra super duper fucked.
1: It's within their rights under international law and U.S. domestic law, right? Right. right. And it's part of our
0: myth, right? Part of the American Mm -hmm. myth is this great mixing, melting Mm -hmm. pot. We have all these cultures. America's great because we're... We're a country of immigrants. Like all of our national mythology mm-hmm. or a huge part of it is around this idea of send us your weary or whatever yeah. the fuck yeah. Lady Liberty. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not into the myths, but like it's yeah. <laughs> you can't it's like almost impossible to square all of that with what's actually happening unless yes. you're like, well, America's full of shit, which some of us are OK saying that. But if you're if you're not like, yeah. It's hard.
1: Well, I think that that's, I mean, you're hitting on exactly what sort of the initial compulsion to write this book and it continued preoccupation as I was writing it, which is this idea that my family sort of holds and a lot of white U.S. American families of like the Ellis Island era hold onto and get to sort of hold this, this valiant story of, you know, someone came here and sacrificed and um, because of the, Opportunities they were afforded and their bootstrappy hard work, we get to be who we are, Mm -hmm. right? And we get to have our life thanks to them and thanks to this, you know, so called American dream. And that is frankly like a wildly sanitized um story uh Mm -hmm. like again a mythology something we've created uh you know in retrospect that's a story we've told backwards right to to make sense of the present and to make the present meaningful we've told a story backward because the fact is um there are lots of scholars who write really beautifully about this um we sort of sanitized the ellis island experience you Mm -hmm. know um it was actually like really awful and really horrible Mm -hmm. um And, you know, as I sort of write and ruminate about in the book, um, my great grandmother had four kids and two of them, you know, one was my grandmother and one was uh, my uncle Nikki, and the other two died really tragic early deaths. Um, So this story, even just like within my own family, this story of like everything's great, worked out great for us because of the American dream. Like it's not true. It's actually like 50 percent of, you know, my immigrant grandmother's children, great grandmother's children, you know, had very tragic lives. And, you know, one of the other preoccupations that the book was, was holding was like, so, so my family gets to have sort of that story and gets to tell the story backward. And yet contemporary immigrants are relegated to the space of the criminal and the invader and, the um, you know, the person crossing that line. So we have this wild double standard among white U.S. Americans who kind of hold dear to the story of where they came from while also either tacitly or actively supporting the exclusion of contemporary immigrants.
0: Yeah. Okay. Wait, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about the Moria Six, and because that's a huge part of your book, in addition to the myth-making and all of that, which is a group, well, it's six individual Afghan young men. Um, Some of them were minors. Some of them were adults. Some of them were both according to the Greek um, (laughs) and the Afghans, um, who were convicted of setting this fire that burns down this Maria uh, refugee camp, which is this huge camp on Lesbos in Greece. And the camp was, you know from my understanding feels a lot like the Southern border and maybe Arizona or Texas, which mm-hmm. is just like one of the most politically toxic places when it comes mm-hmm. to the border. Um, and just like, it's where all the conversations are being had about what's going on and what's wrong and what's right, et cetera. And mm-hmm. so this fire happens. These six young people are convicted. They're blamed. They're criminalized. And I don't know. There's not really a question, but I, I, I want to talk about it because <laughs> yeah. it feels bad. It feels really bad.
1: Yep. it yeah. was. Yes. Um, no, I, there are so many threads there. Um, and I think that so, so effectively what the fascinating thing to me about about Moria was that it was this camp and it was widely known as human rights graveyard. Um, and not only is it widely known as that, there's a huge t- to this day and it's like a, a burned down, you know, ruin um but to this day on the concrete wall outside of it um it says welcome to europe human rights graveyard you know on it in these massive this massive graffiti so it was widely known as this human rights graveyard um but no one on the left wanted it none of the refugees wanted it because it was such an awful place mean it was truly a place of like misery and squalor it was completely neglected and completely abandoned and it you know Many people. I, I I talked to a a guy who worked at the UN, and he was sort of like a career United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, like worker. You know, he'd worked all over the world. He'd worked in some of the worst refugee, you know, the, the 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 most difficult, um, like worst supported, um, refugee camps in the world. And he was like, "This is honestly one of the hardest because this is Europe, and this should be better. It shouldn't be like this." You know what I mean? Um, so it was this place of of neglect, and it was this potent symbol for how refugees were, were being met and treated in Europe and the way that they were sort of relegated on these hotspot islands in Greece um, because the rest of Europe wouldn't take them, right? Until they went through a process that could take years. And so there was this group of people that were growing and growing and growing and had very few resources. But the, so the right hated it too, right? The right hated right. it because they're like, get these people out of here. Like, we don't want these people on right. our island. Like, get these people out of here. And the left and, you know, refugee solidarity people were like, Get these people out of here because this is a human rights graveyard and this is awful and these camps shouldn't exist in the first place. Um, I will say, and this is to like an earlier point, that a really interesting thing happened to, for me. Um, you were sort of talking about the way, when you were talking about abolition, th- this notion of like the way we sort of sometimes make presumptions about the way things have to be because we are institutionalized in a way right. like in our minds right like we are uh we are stuck sometimes in right. our imaginations because the structures around us it's sometimes when the structures are so heavy yeah. and um oppressive it's sometimes hard to see outside of them right, right? i think right. that you're so right about that with abolition and that wow. was fascinating for me to see because the thing about morio was that it was an awful place you know we're talking rats like biting kids faces um you know it was infested with rats like five hundred people for a single toilet. Um, everyone living in tents. It would snow some years, and people were just living in tents with no, you know, with no heat. Then they'd put, you know, little heaters or like cook stoves to warm. Or and then, then there a fire would break out. You know, it was just awful. Right. Um, but they could leave, right? It, they could actually take the bus into town or walk to the beach, and they could leave um, and then come back, right? Like they could. They, but the, it it wasn't. It was an open air prison, but they couldn't leave the open air prison and I remember being in Greece at first being like yeah this is really bad but like at least they can leave right Mm -hmm. because you know in the United States like they can't leave and that spoke to me about just how like I've been writing about immigration and you know I wrote an op-ed called like the cruelty of the U.S. immigration system like calling for it to be dismantled and yet I was still institutionalized in my mind into the like well, at least they can leave. That's good. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because like the, the the normal for me is that refugees are locked up, even though I know how awful and abnormal and how that needs to end. Right. right. So that's one of the things that called me to writing about Greece because and to writing about an immigration context and deeply researching the immigration context outside of the U.S., which is that like I feel like after my last book, like I'm like, I have said what I have to say and I'm saying it again and again and again and I'm feeling stuck, I'm feeling like looping, like I'm feeling like I'm a little bit losing my mind because I'm just looping again and again and it was really helpful to like go somewhere else and learn about what's happening there and be able to see these symmetries and be able to see the way my mind works and the places that I, the grooves that I had gotten mm. stuck in and the grooves that we've all gotten stuck in, right? right. So anyway, Moria was instructed to me. Um, so Moria in September of 2020, a, a massive fire broke out, and it quickly, you know, over the course of two days, basically incinerated the entire place, like, you know, to dust. There are about 11,000 people living there at the time. It was built, by the way, for 3,500, um, and those people were all set on the run. They were on the streets for weeks, um, you know, when they tried to revolt and say, get us off the streets, there's not enough food, or, so, you know, we're, we're all, like, defecating in the streets, like, there's not enough sanitary. like, we have no housing, we're just, in the streets after being right. displaced again, after being refugees, you know, being displaced here. Um, and there were, t- the police tear gassed them. It was just a, a, a complete emergency and failure on, on the part of the Greek government to, to do the right thing. But what they needed was fall people, right? It was like, this place has burned, some. this place burned down. We think it's arson. These guys will do. And, uh, you know, I am the daughter of two criminal defense lawyers. I know that it is unlikely that we'll ever know for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure, exactly what happened at the Moria fire. But I can tell you that there is absolutely no evidence that these young people, these six young people started the fire. And in fact, uh, an incredible um, kind of like digital research um, firm Mm. called Forensic Architecture did a remarkable report on the fire and showed, you know, mapped the fire with the winds, with the drought. And it showed that like, it was probably, honestly, an effect—the uh, effect of drought and climate change, and just like a really, really, really hot summer um, with not a lot of water and massive overcrowding—that caused this, you know, this fire to just leap and spread incredibly quickly. So right. it probably wow. wasn't even arson at all. In any case, the Greek government needed a fall guy. Right, this horrible thing had happened. They, these six kids um, were fingered for the crime with very little evidence, and they've been in prison um, ever since. Yeah. September right. twenty twenty.
0: You just mentioned something about yourself when you were talking about like, oh, at least they can leave and and it kind of hadn't like hit for you how like maybe desensitized Mm -hmm. or like how entrenched you were after having seen so many things. And you talk about how even these like immigration court judges, like they are suffering Mm -hmm. from vicarious trauma and that there's just like so much trauma from obviously first and foremost, the people who are leaving their homes fleeing you know going crossing perilous waters or you mm-hmm. know blistering deserts or whatever it is yep. mountains whatever it is to get to safety and to find a, a place where they can you know survive yep. but also that that has a huge trickle down effect and that it's affecting the entire sort of immigration yes. complex and I'm wondering if you feel like as a person who's who's witnessing this if they're, if we're focusing enough on the trauma or Mm. are we focusing too much on it? Or, you know, like, I just, am really curious because as a person who's not there, who doesn't see it firsthand, I have my own opinions, but in reading your book, maybe they've changed. So I'm curious what you think Mm. about that.
1: That's such a fascinating question. I mean, uh, you know, my, I worked at um, a high school for many years where I like coordinate for immigrant youth in in Oakland and I coordinated mental health services. And so my like, you know, there's, there's a part of me that's like, we never are focused enough on trauma and serving people who have been traumatized by these systems. But I will also say that, that, that trauma is an effect, right. Mm -hmm. And, and the effect uh, of experiences and, you know, the, the effects of trauma follow an experience. And Mm -hmm. so much of the trauma related to immigration once the border is crossed has to do with the systems themselves and even beforehand, right? And so I think, yes, of course, we must be focusing on the trauma. Um, And I think that this question you're raising, I mean, as you know from reading the book, that this question of vicarious trauma and how numb um, many of us can become um, to really horrific conditions experienced by others, like almost sometimes as a coping mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like the, the numbness that serves us, right? Um, because it help it helps us not feel very difficult things um yeah. which then is very adversely impacts solidarity efforts, right? Um, And fighting for justice and what's right. But for the people who have experienced trauma themselves, I mean, I would say absolutely, we need to be focusing on the effects of that. Like what is the effect for these six young Afghans of having left their homes in Afghanistan, largely because of the US intervention in Afghanistan, right, Um, that has been going on for decades. They leave Afghanistan they come to Greece, they're stuck for over a year in this horrific refugee camp, then it burns down, then they get fingered for the crime, and even though they can prove that they're children, they still get tr- tried as adults, like they were not in the place where the fire started, doesn't matter, they, they have a two-day trial, they get put in jail. And, you know, as one of them told me relatively recent, recently, actually, who's like, I if I ever get out of prison, I have to get out of Greece immediately. Like Mm -hmm. this place has broken my heart. That's what he said to me. This place has broken my heart, you know, like, and so the trauma that these young men have experienced is, is remarkable, but I think we want to focus not just on the trauma, but on the systems that caused it. Right. Right. Or that, that exacerbated it or perpetuated. Um, And I think we sort of have to be holding both of those things simultaneously, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I guess like to this point of like, holding both of these truths and like seeing refugees and immigrants as full realized human beings Mm -hmm. and not just people who have experienced trauma or people who are like whatever, you know, having, living through hell, um, that, and you call this out in the book, you say that like immigration stories, like both the writer and the reader are sort of cast as saviors Mm -hmm. and like we focus on a lot of the people around the actual immigrants when we tell these stories, like mm. the grandmothers who bring the cookies or the crane operator guy yeah. or the nice judge or whatever that looks like. Yep. And I'm wondering, like, how can we tell better stories? Because mm-hmm. so much of this book is about how we tell stories. How can we tell better stories that are... Holistic
1: around
0: mm-hmm. people as individuals, and they don't become huddled masses or whatever it says on the Statue of Liberty. I don't know. It says I think things. You got it. She I think says yeah. she's saying things, <laughs> Lady Liberty. Um, totally. But like, how? Because part of what is so crushing about what's going on is the num sheer yep. numbers of right. people, but also every person every people is a person, right? Like, so I don't know. I just, and like, how do we remove our own savior complexes from these stories, both from as readers and writers?
1: Yeah. Su- such beautiful questions. Um, you're such an amazing reader. I'm like,
0: oh my gosh, <laughs> she, she really read this
1: book. Like, I I'm did so read honest. it. I, I mean, I, I I don't mean like, <laughs> did you actually do your homework? I bet like you're just such a, a brilliant Thank reader an insightful reader. It means so much. Um, the ideal reader. Um, I, I, that's absolutely, you know, I actually went relatively late in this book writing process. And I'm like, oh, this is a book about storytelling and how we tell stories, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and the Thing you're saying about numbers this is the paradox of writing I think about any social issue and and you know mm-hmm. particularly migration which is you know what I write a lot about which is that the numbers and the scale is incredibly important mm-hmm. and yet an over focus on scale can obscure detail and individuality mm-hmm. and nuance right mm-hmm. and so it's like the journalists job is to make meaning of scale but how do you make meaning of scale without um, blurring uh, right. the right. contours of what you're writing about. And you know, I talk about this all the time um, with with my writing students. Part of the issue is like the sort of journalistic trope is, ah, I'm going to write about the ha- crisis of unhoused people in San Francisco. So I'm going to find one person that I'm going to follow, right, right, to make meaning of that and to like so that people can see what it's like to be an unhoused person in San Francisco. And again, I've written a, st- a story, you know, many stories right. like this. But the problem with that is that, like, on the one hand, you are giving someone space on the page to be an individual. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, you're making that person carry an entire sociopolitical dynamic on their shoulders right. as if, right? That And that's just like, that's a little bit of the trap. And so um, I I'm, I'm feel like I'm not answering questions, but I'm mostly saying, yes, this is such an important question. One of the things when it comes to immigration stories that I'm particularly preoccupied with is we so often start immigration stories at the point of immigration mm-hmm. when actually like this, the, the, even the decision to migrate starts way, 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 way before the person gets to the border. Right. Like, right. and the conditions that caused that person to migrate started way, way, way before they decided to migrate or even imagine migrating and maybe even before they were born. Right. right. So it's like, so it's kind of like, uh, there's like a scope that I'm interested in. Like, how do we hold a breadth and scope and sort of understanding of causality? Like, what were the conditions working upon this individual?
0: Right. Did you, uh, he blurbed your book, but have you read Jonathan Blitzer's new one, Everyone yes. who's Gone Is Here? So fantastic. I, yeah. I'm like, I'm reading it, but I was reading it while I was reading your book and I was oh, like, yeah. fuck, I got to stop. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I think I was like reading his on audio and then I, anyways. Yeah. But he does a great job in that yes. book of going back really far. Exactly. To pr- like to tell his subject stories to the point where as I was I'm like thirty percent into the book and I was like, wait, is this guy going to the United States? Like what? Like right. I'm like legitimately like, yes. wait, I've been with this guy for thirty years already and like we're not even in like, totally, he's just like hanging out in Mexico for decades. So I think he does a really great job of that. And I, I, that was something that stuck out to me, like kind of reading your books together. But then I had to pause because I was like, it's, <laughs> I can't, I couldn't, I'm starting to like blur, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, no,
1: I mean, that's like such a valiant project of his book is sort of showing all of the causalities that kind of played out and, and all of the, the, the ways various um, elements of geopolitical decisions um, played out upon places in Central America, the countries in Central America that are now, you know, have these like mass exoduses because we right. can't look at any one historical moment, even if that moment is now in any kind of vacuum. Right. Right. I would right. also say to your question of sort of like, you know, the, the, h- how do we tell better stories is um and this can sort of be tropey but but it's like how do we allow the people to be more than just um the experience how do how do we as storytellers make space for people to be people and exist beyond the bounds of the socio-political dynamic we are writing about. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really, really important to me. I mean, I will say like with my first book, which is The Faraway Brothers, I write about these um, identical twin brothers. I know you have twins. Yes, um have identical twin yeah, brothers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, And um, what was so fascinating about them to me um was so many things but it was they had really different experiences of their own immigration stories and you kind of couldn't find two people who were more the same you know they'd spent they were raised by the same people they look exactly alike like they'd spent almost all of their waking and sleeping hours like you know in very close proximity to each other and yet they experienced the same events differently like internal internally Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't have a great answer except for like a, a real attempt to hold that question at the Red hot Center of everything we're writing.
0: Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, that kind of question that I ask is usually not just for you and for me, but also for right. people listening, like to think about it yeah. a little bit because yeah. there isn't really a good answer. And I'm sure if I asked every person who's ever written a thing about a person who's ever immigrated, they'd have a different answer. Or if I asked every person who's ever immigrated, mm-hmm. you know, like that. that totally. You know, but that there that is something that deserves our attention like as we try to like read and engage with what's going on yeah um and speaking of reading one of my as you meant you as you said before so kindly I'm, I'm the ideal reader which I appreciate you I'm not are. But I love it <laughs> but one of the things I love reading is the acknowledgements of a book and yours are fantastic. And I have two questions about your acknowledgements. One is you mentioned Maggie Nelson's idea of a ghost book. Yes. Can you explain what that is? I've never heard that before. And I'd love to know a little bit more.
1: Yes. The ghost text. Actually, one of my, um, a student who's like an incredible novelist who was in one of my um, classes that I taught, brought this notion to my attention. I was like, oh, yes. Um, so Maggie Nelson said that a lot of her books have a kind of ghost book and you know, a book that secretly or not so secretly, as the case may be, stands behind my book, not just as its muse, but often as, as its literal stylistic and our structural model. So it's this idea that like there's a book that your book is in either direct conversation with on the page or maybe even just like it is, you're in constant conversation in your mind with it as you're writing. Um, mm-hmm. And so mine, uh, I was like, I was so taken with that um, because I was like, wait, I have one of those. I know exactly what she's talking <laughs> about. You know what I mean? It, it, it like hit me with with, with with I recognized what she was what she mm-hmm. was talking about. Um, because mine is a book by Svetlana Boym called *The Future of Nostalgia*, which is just a remarkable book where she's looking at this notion of nostalgia and has kind of an interesting framework for thinking about nostalgia and she sort of she has sort of two different kind of categories of nostalgia one is more like sort of emotional and self-conscious and sort of thinks longingly toward the past but with an understanding that um, There's a distance between past and, and present, and there's some, you know, there's a longing for a past and maybe a recognition that it might not exist um, in, in, in the way that we long for it. Um, and then there's something called restorative nostalgia, which is the much more, the kind of nostalgia we see in like white supremacist movements and nationalistic mm-hmm. movements of this kind of like, you know, make America great again. Like there is this past moment, this past time, this past era that uh, we must return to. Mm-hmm. And then of course that past never is real, that past never right. exists, um, but it's, 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 it's a mythological past. Um, and she writes about the way nostalgia plays out over the way cities are designed and she's just like a brilliant theorist. Um, and I just read that book again and again and again and it helped um, sharpen my thinking and helped mm-hmm. expand my thinking. Um, it was also uh, suggested to me actually on stage by um, the writer Sasha Heyman, Alexander Heyman, um and he, he was talking about this book and I was like, I must go read it. And I read an excerpt that very night um, and then immediately, you know, got my hands on the book. So I owe a lot to uh, Sasha Hemant for uh, bringing my ghost text to my attention.
0: <laughs> I just love that so much. I love the idea of a ghost book or ghost yeah. text because one of the questions I always ask people is what's a book that, like, what's something that you would recommend or like that your work is in conversation with? And a lot of times when I ask that question, people answer, but sometimes people are like, they have no idea. Mm. And that Mm. is very hard for me to fathom because there's so many times when I'm reading a book and I'm like, this is in conversation with this thing. And sometimes I'm like, okay, maybe they've never read it. But sometimes I'm like, I know you've read this. Like, (laughs) I know you. this is in your brain somewhere. And like, maybe you're not thinking of it in that way. But like, I... Am seeing the parallels. Totally. Uh, <laughs> the yep. other thing you say in your acknowledgments is that this book, A Map of Future Ruins, owes everything to your life as a reader, and yeah. I want you to say more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's connected to exactly what you just said. You know, I took a picture of this like a mass stack of books. Um, that influenced this book and that helped me both learn specific things fill holes um i talk about this with with students this notion of like as a writer there are holes you have when you're approaching a project and i think this is true of fiction that what little i write a fictional i'm hoping to write more um and it's certainly true in nonfiction. like i didn't know that much about the greek debt crisis for instance you know what i mean like um But then there are hungers, like, I just wanted to learn more about the Oracle, like, maybe there was something Mm -hmm. there, I just wanted to learn more about that. So I read an excellent book called um, The Oracle by by William Brode, um, a New York Times reporter, which was like, super fantastic. Um, And so like, there was this stack of books that were attending to both my holes and my hungers. And there were sort of like, these are things I need to learn in order to like, be able to write this book to understand the things that people are telling me, but also to like further attend to my hungers and just these things that I'm kind of interested in in Mm. learning and, and these rabbit holes I want to follow to see, you know, what's there. Um, But it's also true that this book is um, a little bit more discursive than, than my first book. It's much more of a weaving together of ideas Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. storylines and, it was a little bit terrifying to do that because mm-hmm. it's just harder structurally to do. And it took a little bit of courage um, to deviate from like what I had done before and to t- kind of take that leap into like, maybe, maybe these things go together. I feel like they do in my heart. Can I convince other people that that, that this holds together? Mm-hmm. In, in a, and I think the only way I could um, amass that courage is by um reading, you know, and just reading books. So,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, I don't have to ask you the question of what books you would recommend that are in conversation with your work, because you've already given us some. Um, (laughs) So we'll just pretend like I asked, but it's on the record. Um, But I do have to ask you about how you write where are you? How many hours a day? How often? Snacks and beverages. You do mention in the book that you drink tea, (laughs) I which I clocked because I am a tea girly. So I need to know about how you drink your tea, what kind of tea you drink, if you drink it while you write. I know you mentioned being in the backyard writing. So just set set the scene for us. Yes, absolutely. Um,
1: I, I love this question. So I recently just moved, so my setup is different and a little okay. bit more chaotic, but um, <laughs> I, my partner and I lived in a 600-square-foot house until very recently, and we also have a kid and a cat, um, and we had a tiny little backyard in Berkeley, so we, um, blessedly, right before the pandemic, we built a little hut in the backyard, and that's where I wrote. and it was this mm. beautiful... I actually had a dream once that I was like, I just like really kind of incredible expand like one of those dreams that you're like something else was going on there was sort of like I was accessing some like higher I don't know (laughs) higher insight um and I had this dream that I like had this office within a redwood and that's where I was like creating all of I was a painter for some reason in this dream um but in fact this little like um this little office that we built was this magical little cabin super tiny you know like um you know, maybe like 60 square feet that was made of these, this like salvaged redwood that we found. So it was this beautiful space that our friend Dylan built for me. And I wrote this book almost entirely there during the pandemic. I have to write with tea. I'm a black tea drinker. Straight um, up or milk and it's, sugar? You know, it's, it's a, rarely sugar, sometimes milk, like my Earl Grey tea. it I kind of like have to do, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, which tea is it today? Yes, so Earl Grey same. tea. Are you? Okay. Yes. I want to hear what other teas... Um, Earl Grey tea always wants milk, but I've actually been drinking um, this tea that I got in Greece that has this, mass. it's black tea, but it has this, it's called mastica or mastic um, gum. It's like a, sort of like a bay leafy minty kind of deal okay. that's infused into the tea. It's really good. Um, and okay. that, that, that wants no milk. And I, I will say I wish that I was like a more ritualized writer in the sense that like, I wish that I... Um, was like, I wake up and then I do this and these are my best times of day. But I have to say my writing is like a bit catch as catch can. You know, I mm-hmm. have a couple of other jobs. I have a kid. I have, you know, I, um, right. and so I'm trying to sort of like carve out particular times. I am trying to write a novel and I'm trying to be like every Friday morning. That's what I do um, for an hour just to like see what, what comes out of that. Mm-hmm. But I have to say I, when I find time is when I write um, mm-hmm. and I try to carve that time out, but it's not necessarily ritualized.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you do snacks?
1: Totally. Um, dark chocolate. Um, I have dark. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's my main snack and
0: my uh, main like. I'll treat. allow that. I'll <laughs> allow that. I find dark chocolate to be kind of disgusting.
1: Really? Even though you're a black tea drinker. Yes, but I put milk
0: and sugar in my tea, and uh-huh. my tea comes out. My tea comes out very cloudy. It's, I love it. It's What's kind there? of like a tinted milk. I Are think you, is what <laughs> it is.
1: <laughs> Are you like a like a like an black Earl Grey? Tea, black tea, Earl
0: Grey, uh-huh. English uh-huh. breakfast. Yep. But I ha- I I will sometimes drink like a chai yep. from a tea bag, not like a concentrate latte. Yep. yep, um, yep. But there I've gotten like embarrassingly snobby about my tea. Uh-huh. I used to just be like, I used to drink like whatever they had at Starbucks and be like, this is great. Now I went to Starbucks a few weeks ago and got tea and was like, I can't drink this garbage. And I was like, I have gone too far. Like when I have friends who travel, if they're going to like Europe or Canada, I'll have them bring me back tea. Yes. My mom was in London. She bought me back this like black rose from Fortnum and Mason. That is like the best tea ever. And I ration it out. Another friend was in London and bought me this black tea from sketch. The like, like high tea place. It's so good. Um, what was the
1: rose tea? Because Rebecca Solnick got me this like it truly came in a treasure box. Um it was like the uh, called Akbar I think this rose oh. tea and I just finished it and I need to like
0: find it again. Okay, I will send you my two rose teas because I have uh, a I have a Parisian rose tea and then a uh, British
1: rose tea. Oh my gosh, I need to know. And I next time I'm curious if you like this mastic tea so I'm going to I'll I'll get you a I'll get, get, get you a, I'll get you some next time I go back. Literally,
0: <laughs> anybody who drinks tea on the show, I end up having a full like I yes, end up yes, sending like, we are, jasmine Ward. Like box of teas, like a sampler of my favorite <gasps> She's a tea like teas. Too. She likes a black tea also. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, black there's tea. there's few of us because it's a lot of like green tea or like herbal yep. tea, and I'm not yep. interested in those people. Nope. No, but the you. black tea drinkers <laughs> we are I, I can we're a, we are a crew, we're a we're team. We're a family stick
1: together. <laughs> 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 yes.
0: It's you, me, and Jasmine right now. And also amazing. I think Crystal Hana Kim drinks oh, black I love her. tea. Oh, that's really good to know. <laughs> she I used to be like her and reuse the tea and the tea bag over and over. But uh-huh. now I need a stronger concentrate for all same, my milk. Same. I, I kind of <laughs> like the second brew. It's just not, it not doesn't do it for me. No, me neither. No. I've started just li- being really just splurging and just a fresh tea bag. Yep. I just need a fresh tea bag. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, Love people, who, the yeah. tea fam. Yes, I, me too. I'm, I'm so glad to have this. I, when I saw <laughs> it in the book, I was like, Woo! page 249, <laughs> like make it note. Um, Okay, another thing that I'm passionate about is being a terrible speller. So what is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first term? Try.
1: Oh my God, no
0: words. Are you a terrible speller as well?
1: Oh my God, I'm a terrible speller. Especially, I have a problem with double. I put double T's or double M's or like they don't exist. Like commitment. Yes, commitment. Committee. How about the E's on
0: committee? I don't know. Maybe there's five. That is
1: easier for me because it's so weird that I'm just like I know they got two at the end at the end, but I don't know the other ones. Like the double T's and the double M's and the like. I can't. Yeah, I mean, I'm truly a terrible speller. Me too. Um, Towel. Does it have two? I don't know. I don't think so, but I think
0: it might. Yeah. Like I could see it either yeah. way.
1: It's like, I don't see
0: it. I don't see the words. I'm with I don't you. Know. I can't see it. Yeah. And I, and once yeah. I learn it, I can, I can't retain it. Recommendation, Completely. like a month or two ago, I spelled recommendation correctly on the first try. Oh, and I was like, what did nice I do? Stuff. What did I do? Haven't done yeah. it since.
1: <laughs> but then it's like all every, you know, everything's got spell check. Yeah. So it's like, I don't have to learn at this point. I'm 40. You know right. what I mean? Well, I've like, recently started taking not notes
0: happen. in my own books which I used to, I used to just take notes on my phone. Yep, and now yep, I'm yep. like, what if my children and like, like I died in like 50 years, they're <laughs> like, mom could spell. But she doesn't spell <laughs> they're going to be like, what does that
1: say? I think that'll just be endearing. I hope so. Nothing. I hope so. Yeah.
0: It's, it's a no, it's a, it's an acronym. Don't worry. Um, so we're like, so out of time. So I just have one more question for you, which is if you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Oh,
1: my God. You know, I mean, I have to say, is this a cop-out? Like, I would be so interested in um, what Svetlana Boym had to say about this book. Or, like, not even had to say. I think I would just be, like, so honored to know it, like, reached her hands. And, unfortunately, she passed um, a few years back. And Masha Gessen wrote, like, a beautiful, um, just sort of, I don't know, owed um mm. to her. But I think I'd say like Svetlana Boym just because I would want to like say thank yeah. you. You know, this this book is um things in 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 large part. I love you know, that. To,
0: it's to, not yeah. a cop out. Yeah. Every answer is allowed on this one. Okay. Great, um, great, great. People, you can get a map of future ruins now wherever you get your books. I will let you know that I read 80% of this book off the page, but I did listen to about five chapters via audio just to get a sense. It's not Lauren who reads them, but your audiobook narrator does a really good job. And I was like, I could believe this is Lauren. Like I felt like she really nailed it. So for my audiobook people, stamp of approval. For my iReaders, stamp of approval. Get the book wherever you get your books. Lauren, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Tracy. This was such a joy. You were just such a Yeah, a brilliant reader and community advocate and person.
0: And oh, thank goodness Jesus. for you. You can come back anytime you want to give me compliments. Great Love and, compli- and, and tea. And tea. And, and tea. everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. <laughs> All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Lauren Markham for being my guest. I'd also like to say thank you to Shaylin Tavella for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for February is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. We will be discussing that book on Wednesday, February 28th with Dr. Uche Blackstock. If you love the Stacks and you want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.